by Ramos. I always wondered what a new Red Grace Media website would look like. And now I know. I'm looking at it right now on my second monitor because the new website is up. What do you think? You proud, you proud of it? You like it? Yeah, it's good. I like it. Um, it's very simple, very clean, very functional. That's kind of what we're going for. Uh, I just hope everybody takes advantage of everything. You know, I started blogging again. Hey, that's going to be on the site too. It is. <laughs> yeah. How about that? So uh, on the Red Grace Media uh, website, you could either watch, listen, or read. And then, of course, we have featured films like Unpopular and, of course, the stuff we're working on now. Uh, but uh, we just figured it'd be easy for people to navigate the site under these those three headings you know people want to watch something or listen to something or read and i think uh because i do so much writing anyway uh i just kind of have a passion to write again so i'm hoping these blogs will be useful well i'm looking at that russia ukraine and biblical eschatology so i i'm, I'm gonna jump in there for well that was one of our last podcast episodes but i'm gonna i'm gonna jump into that mm-hmm. one in uh at, at some point and go re-listen so Mainly, what I wanted to say that for is because it's cataloged. All the episodes there are now cataloged on the site. That's where the blog will be. It'll be a great one-stop resource for all of the listeners to go back to, to get more of what is here or be directed to the YouTube page where Ramos is covering a lot of Christ and Kingdom in video form. From And those are a little bit older videos, but they're still good and worth a, worth a watch. Now, uh, today... Yeah. We're talking about Reformed theology, and we have been cruising through a number of topics here, but I think today is going to be one of those really unique topics that is kind of bringing all of Christendom to a head to say, is there a distinct Reformed theology? You often say that to me, and we often have been discussing that. So what do you want to talk about first when it comes to reformed theology, knowing that we can go in a number of different directions here. Let's dive right into it with, with what you want to cover today. Absolutely. Um, yeah. When we're talking about reformed theology, uh, Ryan, I, I think that one of the things that people do is they start exposing themselves to reformed theology. They read something on Calvinism, Maybe they read something on church history or they do a biography. They read a biography on Calvin or Luther or something like that. Or they start going through a teaching series. Let's say uh, they start listening to somebody like R.C. Sproul. And in whatever way, people get exposed to Reformed theology. But somehow, I think that Reformed theology becomes almost compartmentalized as relating, let's say, to Calvinism or that Reformed theology has to do with the five solas of the Reformation. But at some stage of people's theological development, you can, if you're not intentional, you can sort of fail to have a consistent Reformed theology in different areas of your theology. So like, for example, the doctrine of God. What does a consistent doctrine of God, a Trinitarian doctrine, look like from a Reformed perspective? What is what is a true Reformed theology of apologetics? What is true Reformed eschatology? Are those are those terms uh, sort of redundant? Uh, is it possible to have a distinct theology of God from a Reformed perspective? What does that even mean? 
Uh, and so some of these issues, brother, really is um, where we need to go uh, to start really reestablishing the idea that Reformed theology is absolutely comprehensive and it cannot simply re- be reduced to Calvinism as it is in so many people's minds. Yeah, that makes sense. And there's Reformed theology for the five solas, the confessions, covenant theology. Do you want to tap into any of those as we get going, just as a kind of precursor to to dive in? In fact, maybe it'd even be better if we just talk about where does Reformed theology come from? Where was it birthed? Yeah, for sure. Well, obviously, Reformed theology is born out of the Protestant Reformation. It was born out of the movement that started with with Martin Luther uh, in the 16th century. Uh, but out of Luther's efforts, as he protested against the abuses of the Catholic Church, he began to really lay the groundwork for what later became the five solas of the Reformation, especially uh, uh, on this idea of sola scriptura and the idea of sola fide. And obviously for Luther and then later for the Reformers, sola scriptura came to be a direct uh, apologetic and polemic against Roman Catholicism that taught that authority was invested not just in scripture, but was invested in the Catholic Church, in the magisterium of the Catholic Church, in the authority of the Pope, in the traditions of uh, the Catholic uh, faith, and ultimately uh, people, if they really wanted to get the revelation of God they had to go to the Catholic Church for that authority, for that revelation. In the Catholic scheme, it wasn't sola scriptura that prevailed. It was sola ecclesia. It was that the church was the final and infallible authority for mankind. So even today, I don't know if you've experienced this, uh, Ryan, but if you talk to Catholics today, uh, a, a really consistent Catholic will tell you flat out, you have to go to the Roman Catholic Church for that infallible source of God's revelation. You cannot read your Bible on your own. Um, you know, that's something that I've experienced in evangelism time and time and time again. So the solas of the Reformation became absolutely uh, sort of foundational, primary in the Reformation. I don't know if you wanted to add anything to that, but that's that's just what I'm thinking in terms of where it started and what really was the foundation of it. Yeah, and... It's just so odd for them to say that because it's, you know, how do, how do they feel that the Pope has that, just that only specific interpretation or can only be experienced through him? Where where does that come from? Just to tap into that a little bit. And, and I think that helps paint the picture of where the Reformation came from or where Reformed theology came from as well. Well, sure. I mean, I, I don't want to go too far into this one point here, but I think it is important to point out that it's important on how you view the history of the church going all the way back to the apostles. Right. Whereas Catholicism believes in apostolic succession. They believe in the authority of Peter and that the authority of Peter eventually through a process of succession came to reside in the leader of the Catholic church, uh, of the Western church. And so uh, the Eastern Church, of course, said no to that, and then they went and branched off into their own Eastern tradition, inevitably resulting in the Orthodox Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and things like that, Greek and Eastern Orthodox churches. But in Catholicism, they saw that the Pope came to have uh, the apostolic authority invested in him. And so that's where 
that's where the Pope comes to have infallible authority, and so that his own pontifications become uh, somewhat on par with Scripture and infallible. And and then uh, people are bound to whatever dictates <laughs> come from the, whatever declarations come from the Pope. And, uh, and, and then the Catholic Church takes those pronunciations and develops them. Uh, is really a wild, a completely total foreign process to anything that you find in Scripture. Uh, scripture is its own self-contained revelation. Uh, it needs no outside authentication. It is self-authenticating. That's what the Reformers would go on to teach. Um, that was what the analogy of the faith is all about, a part of Sola Scriptura. The analogy of the faith is that scripture interprets scripture. You don't need an infallible, you don't, there is no infallible source outside of scripture. There is no one inspired interpreter like a pope or a council that interprets the scriptures for you. Right. Um, and so yeah, that, that becomes, that becomes very important. But the five solas are just part of the development of the early stages of reformed uh, theology and from that early effort from Luther, then comes the most seminal theologian of the of the Reformed faith, which is John Calvin. And John Calvin builds on the work of Luther. Obviously, Martin Luther a lot older than John Calvin. Um, oh, I don't know, maybe twenty five, thirty years older than Calvin. Uh, but Calvin was definitely his theological senior. Uh, Calvin was much smarter, much brighter, more prolific, uh, much more, uh, I don't know what you want to say, more scholarly and much more sophisticated of a thinker. Uh, so he built on the work of Luther, of course, but then from, from Luther and Calvin then come two traditions of Reformed theology. There's the Lutheran branch and then what came to be known as the Reformed branch uh, in Protestantism. And so uh, we definitely find ourselves more in the Reformed camp. And that's the, that's the side of the Protestant Reformation that developed into the Puritan era. And from Puritanism, of course, that time period, you're looking at the development of the Westminster Divines. You're looking at uh, the Synod of Dort. You're looking at the Westminster Confession. And then from there, you're looking at the London Baptist Confession. So that goes right into the confessional uh, tradition. And that is very important too, to understand. I think, I think for me, I don't know about you, but when I first learned, let's say Calvinism, the confessions were nowhere in sight. Um, right. You, you may get a reference here and there in a book, but the confessions were kind of like, what is that? You know, uh, it's something that you come to later, but really uh, in the 16th, 17th century, uh, the early reform period, uh, the high orthodoxy of reform uh, theology, uh, there was no such thing as reform theology apart from confessional identity. So that's important. And just before we go too far off of the five solas, can, can we just go back for our listeners who maybe have not actually studied the five solas before? Can you state them for us and then just briefly define them and, and go in? Oh, absolutely. So the five solas are going are gonna to be sola scriptura. That refers to scripture alone. And when they, when they said scripture alone, they said that they meant that scripture was the final inspired infallible authority for all things pertaining to life and practice for the Christian faith and for the Christian church. Uh, scripture is the sole source of authority, 
uh, in Christendom, in the, in the life of the Christian and for the church. Also, sola scriptura means that scripture interprets scripture. There is no higher authority than scripture. Therefore, there is no sort of source of interpretation that in a sense validates or authenticates scripture. That's just, that's just so that we avoid, like I said, the error of Catholicism, that there is some sort of, uh, uh sort of, um, uh, a tradition or other source of authority that comes alongside of scripture, another infallible rule, let's say, uh, there is none. And so Sola Scriptura looked to uh, secure that. Now, let me just make one caveat here. Uh, sola Scriptura did not mean solo Scriptura as well, right? Uh, solo meaning Scripture only. Uh, the, the Reformers are not calling for Scripture only, as in Scripture is the only thing you should study. It's the only thing that contains truth. It's the only thing that matters in the Christian life. No, but they're, they're, they're specifying the issue of authority. Uh, it's not that we don't read pastors or theologians or councils or confessions, but that none of those things are put on par uh, with Scripture. And then after sola scriptura, of course, you go to sola gratia, that that emphasizes the idea of grace alone, that you are saved by grace alone, not of works, not of yourself. It is a pure act of sovereign grace. Sola fide is faith alone. Perhaps the most famous slogan of the Protestant Reformation and Luther. Luther is there arguing that a person is justified, uh, through the, through the, the, the invisible organ of faith and that faith alone can apprehend the righteousness of God and that there is no other means that God has ordained for people to be justified in the sight of a holy God. And so again, excluding the notion of good works as a, uh, as a sort of basis for your righteousness. And so that immediately eliminates anything like a synergistic approach to salvation, where it's partly what you do, partly your works, partly your free will, let's say, your own volition, your own mind, your own heart and effort, and partly faith. No, absolutely not. Um, and so very clearly there, as we go from solo gratia to solo fide, you already have the grammar of salvation at work. Solo gratia is stressing that salvation is by grace alone, meaning that grace is the foundation. Sola fide is that salvation is through faith alone. And that is that uh, faith is the instrument of salvation. And so we don't ever want to switch those around either. We don't want to make salvation by faith alone in the sense that faith is the ground of our salvation. That's also not accurate. It's by grace through faith. That's the most proper grammatical uh, sort of uh, reconstruction of those doctrines. Okay. But then after faith alone, then, uh, you know, then you have uh, the emphasis on Christ and his work. So solus Christus is that sola where the Reformation, where the Protestant reformers emphasized that salvation was on the basis of the work of Christ alone and that his work is all sufficient. Um, that his sacrifice is once for all and that nothing can be added to the work of redemption, that what Christ did, he did for his people in providing a once for all sacrifice uh, 
that takes away our sin and takes away the wrath of God, and nothing can be added to that whatsoever. Salvation is not only by Christ's work alone, but salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone. Uh, and then maybe last one would be solidia gloria. All of life was to the glory of God. This is important, Ryan, because what this did is it began to restore the worldview of Christianity away from a church-centric understanding, right? Uh, a sacramentally-centric understanding. And it began to really, uh, uh, it, it began to move away from this dichotomy of the world of the secular and the world of the sacred, right? Where, where if you really wanted to be, uh, connected to the things that matter to God, you have to do that in the church within the sacraments of the church. Personal faith during Catholicism, personal faith, um, really vanished. And the only thing that mattered was your participation in the sacramental identity of the church and in the corporate identity of the mass. And so your own personal faith, repentance and faith became virtually secondary if or non-existent. And so that all that mattered was that you had some sort of sacramental connection to the church, and of course, that via the priesthood. And so, um, Soli Dio Gloria is important because it reminds us that all of life, all of life, not just what happens within the halls of the church, not just what is connecting us in ritual to the church, but all of life, man, is for the glory of God. Uh, every moment of every day, everything you do, whether you're at work, whether you're on the highway, whether you're out farming, whether you're in the family, in the church, or in the shop, every aspect of your life is for the glory of God. So I think that is kind of a working understanding of the five solas of why uh, that's essential to reformed identity and reformed Christian thought. Yeah, su- super helpful. Uh, just just to know and think about those, and I don't know, it, they're always encouraging. Simple truths, very encouraging, and it makes you want to unpack and read more. Now, before we go too far down uh, the rabbit hole, there, let's go back to Calvinism for a second because I think you made a great point at the beginning of the call. Is people think Reformed theology often just means Calvinism, uh, but let's define like what Calvinism is, and, and let's dive in there a little bit. So, kick us off in. Calvinism. Yeah, Ryan, I think this comes to a central concern of why we wanted to cover this. And that is that um, Calvinism has become, uh, for many people, non-reformed. I know that sounds crazy, but you have, you have Calvinists of so many different stripes today. You have Calvinists that do not subscribe to covenant theology. You have Calvinists that do not subscribe to Reformed eschatology or biblical theology, or they don't subscribe to anything like the Reformed confessions, not even a system subscription. I would have a basic system subscription to the confessions, which means I adhere and 
I, I absolutely stand in harmony and in unity with the basic teaching of these confessions, like the Westminster Confession, the London Baptist Confession, the Helvetic Confession, the Heidelberg Confession, and that and in this confessional tradition is found a very faithful representation of our faith, of our religion, of Christianity, crystallized and defined in orthodox fashion. Okay. And, but for many people today, they might believe that God is sovereign. They might believe that God elects. They might believe in limited atonement, but they don't have a proper understanding, let's say, of covenant theology. They don't believe in the covenant of works. They don't believe in the covenant of grace. They don't believe in the covenant of redemption. And as far as reformed theology goes, in that sort of creedal confessional vein of thought, the rejection of, let's just look at that one issue of covenant theology, that would put you so firmly outside of Reformed theology <laughs> that, that, that you have created some kind of hybrid species of Calvinist theology. I'll give you just one example. Um, you know, Cornelius Van Til in the defense of the faith, he even called for what he called a more consistent Calvinism in the area of apologetics. That would be a perfect example of how Calvinism affects every aspect of your theology, not just soteriology. It affects your federal view of God. It affects uh, your Trinitarianism and doctrine of God. And we can get into some of that. Um, and it just has so much more to do with your comprehensive theology from A to Z, not just this one area of soteriology. So I think that, Ryan, is part of the burden of what I wanted to remind us of and kind of talk about the details of that as well. And then moving on to Reformed theology and the confessions, you talked a little bit about this. What are the confessions? Why do they matter? Where, where's the reference point to them? Why should someone study them? Let, let's go a little bit deep there for a second, because I think that's one of the, maybe one of the areas in Reformed theology, if you're, if you're newer, maybe you haven't gone too deep into this category specifically. Oh, sure. Yeah, I think that, um, I think, I think that uh, confessional theology is very important because of its historicity. Uh, we don't want to deconstruct our history. We don't want to act as if Reformed theology is something we're formulating in the 21st century, but we want to appreciate the rich historical soil in which it was born. And the Reformed confessions simply systematize for us Reformed thought. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but because I think it's worthy of its own podcast, but, but it's enough to say that the Westminster divines that came together, uh, you know, in the, in the, uh, in the 17, early 17th century and really talked about uh, confessionalism the end of 16th century as well. But as these uh, confessions are being formulated, you have the greatest and most astute Reformed theologians of that time coming together and taking into account Christian orthodoxy as it goes all the way back to Augustine, let's say, and trying to crystallize for the first time in the history of the church, trying to crystallize a consistent uh, uh, historical um, sort of system of thought that is not Roman Catholic, that is not Eastern Orthodox, uh, 
but that is strictly reformed. And that is very important. Um, and so I think that for all of us, we would do well. Let's say you're studying something, uh, Ryan, in theology. For example, right now at our church, Heritage Grace, we're getting ready to do a whole thing on Christology. We're doing, uh, I think this, this coming uh, Lord's Day, we're going to be tackling the hypostatic union. Well, it's so important for us to go back to the Westminster Confession or to the London Baptist Confession and say, what did they say about the hypostatic union? So that historically, what happened 500 years ago or so, and, and, you know, whatever, 400, 500, who, you know, centuries ago, what happened back then? What did they believe and what can we learn from these ancient theologians in the Reformed tradition? And I tell you what, when you go back to some of these early divines, these er- which, you know, divine just means uh, theologians, these ancient theologians that con- in, many, in many instances, Ryan, contemplated God in ways that we simply do not contemplate God any longer. Um, when you really dive into... Uh, the way that some of the Westminster theologians would contemplate the Trinity, uh, the doctrine of God, the hypostatic union. They are thinking so profoundly about these things in meticulous detail. And so I think it would be to our detriment if we just swept these confessions aside and, and attempt some sort of novel a, a historical, which is to say non-historical approach uh, to theology. And the result of that, Ryan, would be a biblicism. And a biblicism, um, in one sense, is not good, because biblicism just means that we are uh, approaching the Bible in an unhistorical fashion, not taking into account the stream of historical orthodoxy uh, throughout throughout the Christian church. Um, and then it's kind of every man for himself trying to figure out what how to interpret the Bible. And so, you know, we always want to be within a stream of interpretation. We don't want to be out in left field doing our own rogue exegesis, for example. Uh, when I prepare a sermon, I'm always interacting with commentators, both old and new. I never, in, in, in none of my, let's say, none of my sermon or any of my th- theological development, I'm never trying to develop something out in some novel interpretation. I'm always trying to stay within the stream of orthodoxy. And I think confessionalism just helps us to do that. I think it's a stake in the ground. I think it's a stake that we put down and we say, look, we need to stay close to this. Uh, because if we don't, then we could easily go down the path of a deconstruction or of a postmodern approach to theology that's non-historical. And we don't want that. So a good way to summarize it then is to just think of these confessions as a way to steer us back to just core biblical truths so that we don't sway deeper into a liberal and historical, interpretation. And historical. Yeah. Let's move on to... Covenant theology. Now, I love talking about covenant theology. We do it a lot at Heritage Grace. But where would you where would you direct someone who's a little bit newer to Reformed theology when it comes to covenant theology? I mean, we're talking about 
kind of two different things here, but although covenant theology is reformed in and of itself. So can you just go back and redefine what covenant theology is and, and, and what it's teaching to some of our newer listeners? Well, absolutely, Ryan. Uh, when we're thinking about covenant theology, this is a prime example of how Calvinism can be deconstructed in our modern context. If we think about Calvinism as simply approaching the sovereignty of God, election, predestination, perseverance, those kinds of things, and we strip it of its covenantal context, we really are kind of working backwards. We're, we're really kind of undoing our own theology uh, because here's the deal. The Bible begins not with soteriology. The Bible begins with eschatology. And that eschatology is covenantal in nature. Um, it begins in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. And there we encounter God entering into an arrangement with man that only bears the character of a covenant. And then we have to ask, well, what character does that covenant bear? Clearly, it bears a works-based character. Um, Adam, from the outset, this is so important, was in a very particular kind of relationship with God. Um, it, you know, some, a lot smarter people than me have, have stated, to the degree that you understand Genesis 1, 2, and 3, to that degree you will understand the Bible. And that's absolutely right, because at the very fundamental starting point of the Bible, <laughs> the opening chapters, if you go astray there, it will have dire consequences for your theology later. And if you don't understand the nature of the natural order as it was organized from the beginning, which simply means this, Ryan, that... Adam is put into a particular kind of relationship with God based on a particular kind of nature that he has. So then we're left asking the question, what nature does Adam have in the garden? Well, if you ask Catholicism, Adam is born deficient, meaning from the moment of creation, he is already deficient. There's something wrong with him what they call concupiscence. The word concupiscence just means uh, con, uh, con uh, uh, cupere, with desire of some kind. And they would say, well, this accounts for the fact that Adam had some kind of sinful tendency or potential within him that was kind of a disposition leading him away from God. And in that system, Ryan, Adam does not know God as a creature of the dust. He doesn't know him. He's not in a uh, he's not in a, a communion fellowship with God. Those those things are potential for him, but he does not have that. And that's exactly what Thomas Aquinas taught. That though Adam has the uh, the innate capacity within himself, he does not have innate knowledge of God, and he doesn't have innate religious communion with God. See, this is so important for your theology because out of that, uh, out of that departure, if you go the Catholic route or the Reformed route, that will determine the nature of man, 
that will determine the nature of the relationship between God and man. That will determine the nature of the work of Christ. That will determine the nature of, of man even after the fall. That will determine the nature there. And there's so much to talk about there. Um, again, we'll have to do an episode just talking about Rome's view of protology, which is the study of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Protology just means the study of first things, um, kind of like eschatology. We have protology, and uh, that becomes so absolutely indispensable. All of that, though, is leading us to a fundamental question. Uh, what is the relationship of God to to man in the garden. And if it is covenantal, what is the nature of that covenant? And if it's not a covenant of works, as reformed theology stipulates, then what is the nature of that agreement? Well, you have others who today are arguing for a mixture of grace and works in this covenant arrangement between God and man. Now, that is going to directly affect your understanding of the work of Christ, (laughs) who is in Scripture called what? The second and last Adam. And so if Adam, one, is not operating on the basis of pure merit, where he literally earns righteousness and eternal life, confirmed righteousness and eternal life, then maybe Adam, number two, Jesus, also does not earn our righteousness unto eternal life. But that's exactly what scripture teaches is that Jesus had to earn our righteousness through perfect and personal obedience. And so a consistent Calvinism, Ryan, is impossible without a consistent covenant theology. And so for people that are new to covenant theology, just understand there are three uh, covenants that are not, let's say, mentioned in the Bible by name, like, let's say, the covenant of Moses, covenant of Abraham, or something like that. But there is a covenant of redemption, which is in a, a, a covenant in eternity between Father, Son, and Spirit, where each member of the Godhead is agreed as to the not only the objects of redemption, but also the means of redemption, how it's going to be accomplished, and the objective or the goal of reject of redemption, which is to glorify a people in God's everlasting kingdom through Jesus Christ. And so uh, the covenant of redemption is, is, is fundamental, absolutely essential. And then the covenant of works, as we've stipulated, stipulated there, begins to lay the foundation for the work of Jesus Christ later as the, the one who earns our salvation and advances us into a higher form of life. This is what Voss, uh, Gerhardus Voss, in his Reformed dogmatics would call the deeper Protestant conception. And then furthermore, because we all know the story, Adam sinned, Adam failed. Another covenant was introduced, which is the covenant of grace. And we see the promise of the covenant of grace right there in Genesis 3.15, that on the basis of the work of a mediator, man, by faith, trusting in the work of that mediator, could also be advanced to eschatological life. And so that is what theologians would call the covenant of grace that then later is worked out, promised 
in different ways to different degrees and all the other covenants until we see the greatest manifestation of that gracious promise in the new covenant. And then that becomes the way after the fall, after the fall of Adam, that becomes the way, of course, that God advances a people by grace through faith in the work of a mediator. Uh, uh, Ryan, this is Calvinism. This is simply consistent reformed Calvinism. And today you have so many, um, you have so many mutations of theology that we're really losing our grip on consistent reformed theology. And I think it's giving birth to deconstructionism. I think it's giving birth to postmodernism. And really, ultimately, Ryan, here's what I'm going to say, and we'll develop this in future episodes. It's giving birth to a return either to Rome through Thomas Aquinas or to modernism through Karl Barth and different species of those kinds of thoughts or those kinds of theological trajectories, they can metastasize, they can mutate into a thousand forms, but those are really the fountains out of which these kinds of thoughts come, these kinds of systems and proposals uh, come. It's out of that those kinds of original thoughts and uh, nothing new under the sun, brother, nothing new under the sun. But if we don't understand historic reform Calvinism, we will simply be uh, deceived as we buy into a modernist proposal, let's say like Karl Barth that denies that Adam knows God that denies that Adam can earn anything from God through obedience, uh, that ends up becoming, uh, 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 that ends up becoming uh, the way uh, that the gospel itself is compromised. It's a scary thought just to see how it can go into the, the modern thought versus regressing back into, um, you, you know, Rome. And so uh, talk to me then, about the progress of, of reformed theology. We've lightly touched on it, but is, is that what you're referring to when you talk about this in our outline here of these processes really kind of finding their planting their flag? Yeah, absolutely. I think, thankfully, Ryan, we have some, some leading thinkers right now that are doing some wonderful work. I just want to recommend someone that I, uh, have learned a lot from lately. It seems like you go through seasons. Um, let's say you spend time reading Edmund Clowney and it just, man, the guy just teaches you so much. Can't go wrong there. Then you read somebody like Voss. Yeah, I can't go wrong there. Then you read somebody like Voss or Meredith Klein or GK Beale and you just learn so much from these thinkers that they contribute to the progress of your reformed theology. And, and there we're, we're not trying to create a different species of reformed theology. We are simply, you know, the reform slogan, Semper Reformata, just simply means always reforming, right? So reformed and always reforming, which means we we never have the the infallible word on anything we're all working towards greater and greater uh clarity and greater and greater purity in our theology and so the progress of theology is how that we are going to refine reform thinking kind of the way that van til did 
and advancing a more consistent Calvinistic apologetic. He wasn't trying to redefine Reformed theology. He was trying to uh, he was trying to hone in and to purify apologetics in a much more self-conscious, self-aware, reformed worldview. And so I think that's what we really want to do. But uh, Lane Tipton, uh, who teaches over at the Reform Forum and who has agreed to come on here and do several episodes with me on various subjects, you know, is really, really uh, developing uh, some of the things that I'm burdened with in terms of refining reformed biblical theology, reformed covenant theology, reformed apologetics. And this, this is what I'm talking about when I'm referring to the progress of reformed theology, the, you know, the progress of reformed theology and, and uh, what the reformers were thinking in terms of semper reformata. So that becomes uh, an encouraging way forward for us. Now, when we talk about a distinctly Reformed theology, there's a number of topics we can get into. Reformed Trinitarianism, Reformed Federalism, Reformed Apologetics, Spirituality, Eschatology. All of these are crucial issues, all of which can be episodes on their own. As we start to wind down this episode, are there any that you want to cherry pick for a moment and just tap into? Yeah, because we'll be here all day. <laughs> we go. And we'll be we here go, for three hours. <laughs> but I guess it's fine. We go three hours on each one, which we will eventually, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. I think one of the areas that I've been really focused on is, uh, well, uh, several areas, but one would be Reformed Trinitarianism, because I think that sounds kind of foreign. To people, you say we're Reformed Trinitarianism. What do you mean? Well, we all believe in the Trinity, right? But I think Reformed Trinitarianism is really getting to uh, a distinct view of the doctrine of God, and and what we're what I would want to advance is the Trinitarian theology that you find not coming from a uh, a Thomistic tradition. Okay, and this is this is some advanced, pretty advanced theology. Um, but when I talk about a Thomistic tradition, I'm speaking about the medieval scholastic type of sources and resources that kind of crescendoed in not just Thomas Aquinas, but in Thomas's successors like uh, Robert Bellarmine and others who developed. Thomas's understanding of the doctrine of God, and particularly as he understands the idea of uh, the idea of the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit, specifically tackling this issue of eternal generation. Uh, you know, we definitely don't have time to develop this further here, but simply to say that in in much of the classical Christian theistic approach. What you're, what you're looking at there is a kind of doctrine of God where the Father in generating the Son, so he is the only begotten of the Father, and that only begottenness, right? The generateness of the Son, let's say. And, and, and as the Father generates the Son, what many, what many scholastic, medieval scholastics would teach, and even some Reformed theologians would teach, is that what is involved in that generation is an impartation of essence. 
Now, understand that very carefully there, that what is imparted to the Son through generation is the essence of the Father, which is the divine essence. And so then we have to ask the question, does the Son possess the essence in a derivative fashion? Or as Calvin taught, this becomes very important. Does the son possess the essence in an ase fashion, meaning aseity, meaning that he always has had the essence of God, meaning that the son, as he eternally subsists in the Godhead, that subsistence, which is each individual divine person, and their personal properties, in other words, what makes the Father the Father, what makes the Son the Son, what makes the Spirit the Spirit, these distinct personal properties come carry with them complete and total divine aseity. This is what Calvin taught in terms of the aseity of the Son, which Calvin says the Son is autotheon, just like the, the Father's autotheon, and the spirit is autotheon. Autotheon, I know you're going to ask me this question, but so I'll define it. <laughs> autotheon just means God of yourself. Uh, and that is a denial, therefore, uh, a denial of the communication of essence. Now, that is something particular to Calvin and to some of his successors later picked up by Reformed theologians like Herman Bavinck, like B.B. Uh, Warfield, um, Van Til, uh, Gerhardus Voss, and others, where the Son and the Father and the Spirit are all equally autotheon. They are not in any way derivative. They don't derive anything essential ontological from one another. See, these are, these are issues, uh, Ryan, that have to be developed more consistently from a reform position. And today, one of the things that concerns me is that we're seeing a whole movement of classical Christian theism of resourcement and going back to medieval classics, medieval thinkers, especially Thomas Aquinas. And we are eroding this idea of the autotheon nature of the son of Jesus. And that would be just one example of a consistent reformed Trinitarianism that is not, and then I'll, I'll this is the last thing I'm going to say, that's not partly Calvinist and partly Thomistic, but is holistically reformed. And that's, I know that's a, that's a, uh, I know that's a controversial statement, but that is something, Ryan, that is on the horizon for the church. And I think that we need to, we need to identify who are the thinkers that are advancing this kind of robust, consistent Calvinistic Trinitarianism. That's going to be Van Til. That's going to be Lane Tipton. That's going to be Brandon Ellis and the work that he did on Autotheon. Um, and, and many others, and many others as well. B.B. Warfield is in there as well, although B.B. Warfield in some ways went too far in denying eternal generation altogether, some would say. 
So we, we need to understand where do we develop our doctrine of God? Where do we develop our doctrine of God? Do we get it from Thomas Aquinas and the Catholic medieval scholastic church? Or do we have a distinct Calvinist doctrine of God? Something along those lines is what we need to, uh, we need to really focus on and hone in uh, a pure reform theology. And so I think that's imp- very, very important. That's a great summary. And, and I think too, when we go into that in future episodes, especially reform Trinitarianism, we'll, we'll come together and, and make a good jumping off point of additional resources to follow up and, and study with. Maybe that can be included on one of your blogs on Red Grace Media, all of that stuff, having a central point to refer back to for the resources those trusted resources that are coming together for that reform distinct theology, I, I think is very, very important. I know it would be important to me. So I assume others who are, who are, who are learning and growing at, um, at, at the pace that we were doing a heritage grace is a part two. And maybe, and maybe Brian really quick, as we, as we come to a close here, let me just give one resource recommendation on this, on this critical issue right here. Uh, and it's a book that is getting ready to be published, I think, any day now. And that is uh, a recent book written by Lane Tipton. And the title of the book is Cornelius, uh, uh, excuse me, The Trinitarian Theology of Cornelius Van Til. Um, and that resource should be coming out. My understanding uh, is that it's coming out in July at some point. And so that is something that people need to be looking for that ties a lot of this together and what I have called the reformed path on issues like the doctrine of God, covenant theology, uh, all and apologetics, all of these issues tying in all these issues together. So important, really. Uh, now, granted, this is really high theology, but I promise you it will absolutely shape the conversation to come. That's amazing. Looking forward to that one. I know, I know he's been talking about that book for a while now, I think too. So, um, looking forward to seeing that on shelves. Okay. Now for our next episode, unless there's just some, some breaking news that changes everything, which, you know, is pretty realistic. There's breaking news that's happening all the time, but it's a crazy, crazy world out there. Unless there's no breaking news, we're diving in to eschatology, all things eschatology, the, still the most controversial topic, I think, in in uh, all of Christendom, right? W- would you say that that's true? I think so. And I think that only illustrates uh, why it's so important. So we'll have to talk totally. about that for sure. It'll be a good one. Looking forward to that one. Absolutely. To our listeners, thanks for being here. We'll see you next time.